Let us return to the word this morning. We come to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, finishing up this chapter in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And as we do, we come to a major turning point in the Gospel. We'll be looking at Luke, chapter 9, beginning with verse 51 uh, through verse 62. Let me just read this for us. Luke chapter 9, picking up with verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And his messengers, he sent his uh, messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, as I said, this is a major turning point in Luke's gospel because beginning here and then continuing through the next ten chapters or so, right up to the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, Jesus is traveling. It's easy to lose sight of this because Luke doesn't note the geographical progress that Jesus makes during his travels. So as we continue through this next section of Luke's gospel, we have to periodically remind ourselves that Jesus is engaging in an itinerant ministry at this point. He is on the road. He is headed to Jerusalem. Now, you might ask why that matters. After all, what should we care, really, if Jesus says something or does something in this place or that place, this village or that town? Well, one of the reasons this matters is because Jesus is traveling toward a destination, Jerusalem is that destination, and Jerusalem now looms large in the distance. That's what you see here in the very first verse of the passage this morning. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The days were approaching for his ascension. Literally, for being taken up. That is, He is looking forward to his betrayal and his passion 
his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that will take place in Jerusalem. And that is where he is going. From here on out, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, moves him and us closer and closer to that destiny. And it is proper to speak of it as destiny. He is destined for Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He is destined for all that will take place in Jerusalem. In fact, the book of Acts uses a form of that word to describe the events which will take place there in that city when Jesus finally arrives. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 27, says this. The church is gathered together to pray, and this is part of their prayer. Truly in this city there were gathered gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Of course, the difference between what is said in Acts chapter 4 and what's said here in Luke chapter 9 is that in Acts chapter 4, the church is looking back upon events that have already taken place, while here, from the perspective of Jesus as he is moving toward Jerusalem, is looking yet to the future, to what has yet to take place. And so we read in verse 51 that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Some translations make this even more dramatic. They say that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You hear that and you can perceive the intensity of the purpose which filled the Savior. He has a divine appointment in Jerusalem and he is determined not to miss it. Nothing is going to get in his way He knows where he's going. He knows why he's going. He knows what awaits him. He knows the purpose for which he has come into this world. And that purpose is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he's determined to go. Of course, his disciples, still not understanding these things, were not quite so determined. Some, like Peter, overestimated themselves. They didn't understand Jesus' simplest warnings. There were times when Jesus spoke of these things and the disciples, Peter in particular, tried to dissuade him from it. May it never be, Lord. And Jesus has to turn to Peter and say, get behind me. You're speaking the words of Satan. They didn't understand the warnings that Jesus has given. You'll remember that right after the transfiguration, Jesus said, Let these words sink into your ears. This is just back in verse 44. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask about the statement. And now Jesus, knowing that his disciples don't understand these things, takes the opportunity as they travel along, as they go on the road 
to train them, to disciple the disciples. And so as we will see, as they go about their travels, Jesus sets forth in this passage, as they begin this journey, he sets forth for his disciples a series of demands, and they are the demands of discipleship. They are applicable not only for the disciples, but for us as well. And the first demand is implicit and reasonable. The following three demands grow increasingly difficult. The first we find in verses 51 through 56. It springs from the experience of rejection. Luke tells us that as Jesus began his journey, he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now Samaria, from where Jesus and the disciples were, Samaria was the most direct route south to Jerusalem. And so Jesus sends an advance party ahead to make the necessary arrangements, and they are not welcomed. They are, in fact, rejected when they get here. And Luke tells us the reason for that rejection there at the end of verse 53. He was, it was because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now that may seem strange to us. Imagine you're driving off on vacation, and after a long day's drive, you pull off the road into a Holiday Inn, and you go in and you're making small talk with the manager as you try to get your room, and you let it slip that you're on your way to Florida. And immediately, his countenance changes. We run a respectable establishment, and we don't want your kind here. That would be bizarre. But when we read this passage, you note that they are traveling through Samaria. And that is the key to understanding what's happening here. When you understand where they are and where they're going, it all makes perfect sense. There was a mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It went back for centuries when the Samaritans intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors. The Jews considered them racial half-breeds and religious apostates since they accepted only the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and the book of Joshua. That being the case, the Samaritans in turn responded by calling the Jews apostates. And they had hated each other for centuries. Now, since the Samaritan Bible ended with the book of Joshua, they did not believe that worship should take place in Jerusalem. Rather, they set up their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and they established their own liturgy. The Jews then responded by publicly cursing the Samaritans whenever they would meet together in the synagogues. This was a part of the Jewish liturgy. They had prayers specifically designed to declare curses upon the Samaritans. 
A gracious bunch, these were. They would pray daily themselves, personally, that the Samaritans would never enter into eternal life. Now, much of this, of course, is the background to Jesus' conversation in John chapter 4 with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. This is why they talk about where proper worship should take place. The woman asked Jesus, you'll remember, you know, is worship, should it be in Jerusalem or on this mountain? This is where we worship. Jesus tells her she's wrong in regard to her worship. But that animosity... That hatred between Jews and Samaritans, that, that's the background there. That's the background of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This isn't just any old person being nice to some guy he finds along the way. This is an enemy caring for an enemy. If you don't understand that, then you'll never understand the impact that that parable would have made when Jesus first spoke it there in the first century. So it's not at all surprising that when his disciples, verse 54, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That is a typical Jewish response towards Samaritans who have offended them. Now, James and John, of course, as you probably know, became known as sons of thunder. Mark tells us that. And it was because of just such comments. They were deadly serious. Now, remember a couple of things here that we've seen earlier in this chapter. You had Jesus sending out his disciples. And you'll remember in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, we read that he called the twelve together and Jesus gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. So the twelve received this incredible power to heal and to cast out demons. And now they want to take that a step further. Jesus, if you've given us power to do that, surely we have enough power to call down <laughs> fire from heaven and destroy these people. You also have to remember that this is James and John. They had just been up on the mountain with Jesus. They had witnessed his transfiguration. And they had seen Jesus there conversing with who? Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah's got some history with calling down fire from heaven. And this may be why their minds went directly to calling down the fire. They at this point, we're seeing Jesus as an Elijah-like Messiah. 
And thus, Elijah's life was precedent for what, would, what, what they thought should happen now. They remembered back in 2 Kings chapter 1, which records how the apostate king Ahaziah twice sent soldiers to take Elijah, and twice Elijah said, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 soldiers. And it did. James and John knew their Bible, and they most certainly would have had Elijah on their minds. They had just seen him. Of course, what they failed to understand is that though Ahaziah was rejecting God entirely, that wasn't quite the case with the Samaritans. They were certainly in error, but error was not total rejection. You also have the additional issue of the Jews having rejected the Samaritans. So the situations are not really quite the same. Of course, there's more than that going on. In their rush to call for God's judgment, James and John had chosen to ignore everything that they had seen and heard in the ministry of Jesus thus far. They had already heard Jesus say, but to... But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. They had already heard Jesus say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And they had seen these things fleshed out in Jesus' life in a thousand ways. And so Jesus' response is quite appropriate. He turned and rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now you might see in your Bibles that there is a kind of bracket there under over a portion of those verses in 55 and 56, and you'll see in your marginal reference, uh, your marginal notes, that the early manuscripts don't contain that portion. Don't let that throw you. Nobody's trying to hide anything. That's why you have that marginal note there. And you don't need the rest of it. All you need is he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. They continued on. Those on the road with Jesus, those who would pretend to share in his ministry, must be merciful. That's the point. That's the first demand of discipleship. Those who are going to follow Jesus need to replicate the mercy of Jesus. They must be compassionate. They must be forgiving. They would rather see the grace of God called down upon someone than fire. They would rather see someone reconciled to God through Jesus Christ than judged. And so we recognize that there is a place for judgment. God is holy and God will deal with sin. And at that final day... 
there will be those who stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will have rejected him. God has revealed himself in creation and through the gospel and there are those who will ultimately reject every aspect of light which God has given to them and their judgment will be just and righteous. But God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should his people And so we pray. Yes, we pray that God would, in his own righteous character, judge sinners and sin when that day comes. But we pray first, Father, forgive them. Pour your grace out upon them. It will be right that sinners are judged on that day, but we would rather see them reconciled to the Father. We would rather see sinners become brothers and sisters. If we are going to follow Jesus and be like him, then we desire God's mercy to be poured out, and we ought to be demonstrating mercy in our own lives. The merciful have received mercy and therefore are merciful. A merciful spirit is essential for all who want to be on the road with Jesus. That's the first demand of discipleship. Mercy. But discipleship consists of more than mercy. The second thing that is demanded by discipleship is commitment And we see that in the next passage. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds good. That sounds like commitment. Jesus insisted that following him does not mean merely imitating him, but entering into the very conditions of his life. He pairs mercy with an astonishing call to commitment because it was his loving mercy and commitment that kept him on the road to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him there. It led him to fully obey the Father's will even though it meant the giving of his own life. And so now Jesus becomes very explicit in his teaching as he provides three sayings about commitment. So as they begin to travel along the road, one in the group, and this is probably not just the twelve, but a larger group as well, somebody glibly announces, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds a lot like Peter, but we're not sure. Peter said this kind of thing before. It never really worked out very well for him. Words like this are easily spoken. They often reveal an ignorance and an immaturity and an inexperience. Because like Peter, they are spoken spoken without understanding. When someone says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go, 
They don't know what that means. Where's Jesus going, after all? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. Jesus knew that following him would be no easy journey, and that such glib, blithe declarations of commitment would never hold up. And so he counters this person. He says to him, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in saying that, he's saying to the one who spoke so easily of his commitment to Jesus that you don't understand what you're talking about. Now the fact is, Jesus often did have some place to lay his head. Before and after saying this, he had enjoyed Peter's home in Capernaum, after all, and later would find rest and refreshment at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. He also told his disciples in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, (laughs) and in the age to come, eternal life. So what does Jesus mean by this assertion then? He meant that at times those who followed him would literally be homeless. That they would undergo immense discomfort. Just look at the life of the Apostle Paul for one example. But more than that, Jesus is saying that if you walk with him, you will understand eventually that this world is not your home. There will be a dissonance. There will be discomfort. There will be unease. There will be rejection. He was saying that to follow him is to embrace a life of discomfort. No one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. If your Christianity has not brought you discomfort in life, You're doing something wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. We talk about sacrificial giving. I'm not sure we really understand what that means. We give, but is the life that we live changed? Because of our giving? Are we living life any differently than we would if we didn't give at all? That's what sacrificial giving is. It's discomfort of putting oneself out there for for the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of a life that is out of step with modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked, of being isolated, of having people look at you and say, 
uh, uncomfortable with them. They just don't fit. It's the discomfort of sometimes, perhaps, having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ's rewards outvalue anything lost by following him. That's the other side of the coin. That's where we come back to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark. If you've left houses and brothers and sisters and mother and father or children and lands for my sake and for the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come. Persecution too, but you will receive blessing now and in the age to come. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The next exchange comes at Jesus' instigation. And he raises the call to commitment even higher. Verse 59, he says to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus seems to contradict the word of God here. You go back and you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and you look at the teaching of the rabbis. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. This includes, at the very least, showing them respect, giving them consideration by remembering them, engaging in acts of kindness toward them, making provision for their welfare. That's part, at least, of what it means to honor one's mother and father. In fact, Jesus had excoriated the religious leaders of his day for neglecting their parents' needs by the practice of korban, which meant saying to one's parents, what you would have gained from me has been given to God. Sorry. It was a way of saying, I've dedicated all my money to God, so I can't help you. Of course, the money still remained in their bank account. That was the point. And Jesus condemned that kind of ethical sleight of hand, saying, Why do you break the commandment of God God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your mother and father. So any neglect of parents is a violation of the fifth commandment. In in reference to honoring parents, even in death, the rabbis had created a a mass of protective measures. Burial of the dead was considered to be a religious duty that took precedence over all others, including the study of the law. They wrote this, He who is confronted by a dead relative is freed from reciting the Shema, from the 18 benedictions, and from all the commandments stated in the Torah. To assist in the burial of a non-relative was a work that received great reward from God, it was thought, and the burial then of a father 
was a religious duty of the utmost importance. So how could Jesus tell a would-be disciple to neglect the burial of his father? Well, the answer is this. The man did not say that his father was dead. He only said, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, the request was not that he could bury his father alive. That wasn't what's going on either. But if his father had indeed died, the man would not have been on the road with Jesus in the first place. Remember, he's traveling. This is someone who is going along with him. If his father had died, he would be home taking care of the details and the service. Apparently, the would-be disciple's father was getting elderly, and the man was asking Jesus if he could go home until his father died. And it was a request that revealed that this man had no concept of the urgency and importance of the task to which Jesus was calling him. Jesus' famous answer, far from being hard-hearted, exalted the importance and urgency of his call to discipleship. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. The implication was that as a man alive to God, the call of God was upon this disciple and he therefore must do the greater thing to proclaim the kingdom of God. To neglect this would ultimately mean being false to his father's deepest need. His father, far more than needing this particular son to stay around until he died, needed to hear the kingdom of God. He needed to hear the gospel. And if we are really on the road with Jesus, life is filled with this kind of urgency. And we need to feel it. People need to hear the gospel. We have the words of life. And life is short. There is so little time. And there are so many that need to hear the truth. And there is nobody to tell them the truth but the people of God. Nobody but you and I. They will not hear it anywhere else. The third man on the road now offers his services to Jesus with his own condition. Verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The request was minor, and it had biblical precedent, again, in the life of Elijah. When Elijah saw Elisha plowing behind his oxen, he approached him, took his cloak, and threw it over the younger man, indicating his call to discipleship. Elisha accepted, but he begged to go kiss his father and mother goodbye first, saying, then I will follow you. And at that point, Elijah permitted him to go. Jesus, though, is aware of this Old Testament story, so he answers this question with this plowing imagery. 
No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There would be time later for goodbyes, but a disciple must not condition his commitment to even the most proper of obligations. The call must come first and must remain the focus of one's life. It was proverbial in ancient culture that one could not look back while plowing and still drive a straight furrow. You can't do it. Now, I have enough time with taking a shovel and trying to dig out a straight furrow. Plowing with an oxen while you're looking backwards, that would be a trick. It's not possible. Those who pine away, here's the point, after what they have left behind, who are always remembering the comforts of home, who dream about what life might have been if they had not stepped onto the road with Jesus, who keep looking back in the rearview mirror, they do not do well on Jesus' road. They don't walk straight. They're constantly going to the right or to the left. There was a man named William Borden who was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. In the early part of the last century, 1904 and 1905, at the age of 18, he traveled around the world. And this was followed by a, an education at Yale and then Princeton Seminary, where he, at that point, uh, committed his life to Christ, to win the Muslims in China to Christ. This is when... Princeton still had some remnants of orthodoxy in it. Before he left, Borden gave away $500,000, equivalent to $10 million or more today. And he served at the age of 23 as a trustee of Moody Bible Institute. 1913, in his 26th year, he left for Egypt and never looked back. It was the final year of his life because in Cairo he contracted cerebral meningitis. And as he lay dying, he scribbled this note, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. That's the attitude that Christ is calling for. That's the attitude of a disciple. What do we need to travel along this road with Jesus? Mercy and commitment. The only fire we wish to fall upon those who have not welcomed Jesus is fire like that at Pentecost. It is the Holy Spirit. That's what we desire. Fire of regeneration and new life. Jesus demands that we be merciful if we are to walk with him, that we be tenderhearted and compassionate and forgiving that we want the best for those who consider themselves to be our enemies. He wants us to have a heart like his. And besides mercy, we will have a commitment that accepts hardship, that cultivates a sense of urgency in regard to the gospel. The dead can bury their dead. The living must preach the gospel while it is day. 
we will focus on Christ's plan for us, not on what might have been. We leave the past behind us and we look forward to what awaits us in Christ, in his service. That is discipleship. Father, make us disciples. Father, give us an understanding of what you demand from us, that we might be merciful in this world that is so lacking in mercy. Father, make us those who commit ourselves to Christ in all things, to follow wherever he leads, to spend our lives on his road, suffering whatever hardship he may bring into our lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel. Make it so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen.